Welcome to The Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today I'm excited and honored to be in conversation with my next guest, a leader and a speaker with powerful roots, a descendant of both Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington. He is a co-founder and the president of the Rochester, New York-based nonprofit, Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives. Please welcome Kenneth B. Morris Jr. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rob. It's great to be with you. It's it's it's, it's an honor. Um, you know, as I was you know saying as we got started, and I'm going to fanboy out a little bit, <laughs> but also you know just one of the things that I always find interesting um, before I go into a conversation with a guest is it's like I've been listening to interviews, I've been listening to talks, and it's like now I'm actually doing the other side of it. So it's always <laughs> interesting to have that sort of change. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, I, I assume that you're talking about listening to some of my interviews. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you still wanted to invite me on your show. <laughs> so for, for those who are who are undipped and unfamiliar um, and, you know, up until like, you know, like in the, in the last few months, because uh, I did that interview with um, with Chris um, Haley. And that's where this sort of like, oh, let me let me start doing this research. Let me reach out. Give the the listeners a bit of your background, like, you know, and, you know, what your what your work is about, just like a bit of who you are. Well, I'm the great, great, great grandson of uh, Frederick Douglass and also the great, great grandson of Booker T. Washington. And so if you can imagine uh, carrying that kind of uh, lineage and having that DNA and blood flowing through your veins is kind of a uh, heavy weight to carry at times. But I was born in Washington, D.C., um, I spent all of my summers in Frederick Douglass's summer beach house on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay, which was built for him to retire in. And so there were images of my ancestors all around me. And, you know, people ask me all the time, did you did you know that you were related to these these great historical figures? Did somebody tell you? And there was really not a point where somebody said, you know, Kenny, we need to sit you down and tell you something really important. I just always knew, you know, I started to notice my ancestors were on statues and money and postage stamps and seeing bridges his name for them in schools and buildings, uh, you know, it was something I, I would ask my uh, classmates or are, are your grandparents on statues? <laughs> and they would say, no, no, no. But anyway, yeah, I was born in, um, in D.C. I lived in Rockville, Maryland for a little while. And then at the age of about 10 years old, uh, my family moved to California. And so I've spent most of my life. I've, li I've lived a lot of places, but most of my life has been spent in Southern California, which is where I live now. Um, I'm a father of two beautiful daughters and um, married. I've been married in May. I'll celebrate uh, 30. Let me see if I get this right. 39 years of marriage. So I'm really proud of that. And then I'm also president of the Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives. And I'm a co-founder of the organization with my mother, Nettie Washington Douglass. And, and we started the organization in 2007. And uh, we work to lift up the life and legacies of my ancestors. And also uh, we do work around social justice issues and human trafficking prevention, education and K through 12 schools and a whole bunch of things that I'm sure that we'll get into. Absolutely. Um, thank you. That 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 is like one of the most robust introductions that a person has presented. It's like, here's everything, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, and I want to like tap back a little bit because um, I find that and you touched on it a little bit, but, you know, we we, we talk about arts, culture, um, cultural preservation. And you know, I, I want to get a sense um, when you were younger, were you in, into anything creative? 
Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. I wanted to be in the Jackson Five. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been. I would have been Tito. That's how badly I wanted to be in the Jackson Five. But yeah, I would um, be in my bedroom, uh, which was upstairs. And um, I, I built a, a microphone stand because my parents wouldn't buy me a, a microphone in the stand. So I took a weight, uh, you know, that you would work out with and yeah. some PVC piping that you would use for sprinklers and, and made a, uh, a microphone stand. And I would sit up there and work on my dance moves, work on my vocals and um, taught myself to, to play the piano. And then eventually I went, uh, joined this group called the Young Americans and we got a chance to to travel all over the world. And so I was a singer. And really my first career when I was in my teens, late teens and early 20s was in the music business um, as a background singer. I don't know, you might be too young to remember Howard Hewitt and Shalimar. But, uh, <laughs> yes. Okay. And so um toured with, with Howard Hewitt um, right after he, he released his first uh, solo album. And so creativity is um, in my family. It's, it's in my DNA. You know, a lot of people don't know that Frederick Douglass was a violinist. Uh, he taught himself how to play the violin and then taught my my great grandfather, his grandson, Joseph, how to play the violin. And Joseph became a concert violinist. Uh, he would continue his music education in Boston Conservatory of Music and then uh, play in the White House on several occasions. And he was the first black classical recording artist for the record company back in the day, which was a Victor Talking Machine Company. And so that creativity, uh, my wife was on Broadway for many, many years, and that creativity has been passed down to my daughters, who are both um, very creative <laughs> and and working. Uh, my my older daughter is an actress, television and film, and my younger daughter is focused on the stage, and she's in the national tour of Les Mis right now, touring around the around the country. So creativity wow. is is in our family. Wow, I, I love hearing. I always like. I'm right now. I've been kind of going through this. Um, Kind of piecing through this this book, I really get into books, and I find that especially the the, the audio books, what have you, because I'm always on the go, but I can kind of split that attention and be tapped in there. And I've really been in this into this book about um, creative confidence. So definitely, mm. it's something that's top of mind for me. Like, so let's talk about the creativity because one of the things they touch on in there is everyone has it, and it's this belief that oh, we don't have it. You have to curate. You have to you have to cultivate it. And it's like no, it's already there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, you know, I think that we all have the ability to be creative in, in some way. Um, a lot of times we just have to figure out how to tap into that create cr creativity. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm also reading and you, you touched on some of the, the the musical background before going into I believe you had a background in marketing and mm -hmm. career in marketing. So talk a little bit about that. And, and ultimately, what led to you co-founding the Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives? Okay, well, this is a this is quite a story. I'll I'll try and condense it as as much as I can, but um, you know, when I was touring with with Howard, uh, my goal at that time was really to try and do my own thing in the music business. And being out on the road, I couldn't do that, and so I knew I needed to get back to Los Angeles. And so I wound up taking a job for a hotel marketing company as just a telemarketer. And um, to make a long story short, I came up with an idea. And the owner of the company liked the idea. And we started our own advertising and marketing company and we catered to the travel industry. Our clients were mainly cruise lines, but some resort hotels around the world. And we worked with corporations who 
uh, would run conventions and meetings and incentive reward programs for their customers or their employees, their salespeople, to try and get them to consider putting those programs on a cruise ship. And that uh, that company became very su- successful. And I think I did it for about 19 years. And so I was happy again to be a dad and be a husband and a business owner. And don't talk to me about this <laughs> Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington stuff. I really, as I tell the students, when I when I interact with them, I was decisively disengaged from my my lineage until a providence or divine providence happened in my life, and that was in 2005. I read a a National Geographic magazine. It was the article was written in 2003, I think, but I didn't read it until 2005. And the headline was 21st Century Slaves," hmm. and it was an article and a story about human trafficking and modern day slavery existing all over the world including here in the United States. And it really just that floored me. Um, you know, I'd heard about sex trafficking and I, I thought it happened in far off places, uh, but didn't really re- realize how pervasive it was. And so I wanted to learn more about the issue. And there was one night uh, that really changed the uh, trajectory of my life. And I was reading another article, and this article happened to be about a 12-year-old girl who was forced to be a sex, sex slave in the brothels of Southeast Asia and service you know, countless men, you know, almost every single day. And down the hallway, my girls were getting ready for bed. And my older daughter, Jenna, was 12. So she's the same age as this girl that I was reading about. And my younger daughter, Nicole, was nine. And my mind just starts racing, just like it's going crazy. And I can't wrap my brain around what I'm reading and what I'm hearing down the hallway. And I remember thinking to myself, that's what young girls and boys should be doing is getting tucked safely into bed and not being forced in the bed to serve as some sick individual. Right. And when I walked in to say goodnight to my girls, I, I literally had this moment where I couldn't look them in the eyes. And I didn't feel like I could look them in the eyes and walk away and not do something about it. And it was almost immediately that I did understand that I have this platform that my ancestors have built through struggle and through sacrifice, and perhaps we could leverage the historical significance of my ancestry to do something about this. And so on one side, Frederick Douglass and his legacy as a great abolitionist, and on the other side, Booker T. Washington and his legacy as the great educator, aha, abolition through education. And so my mom and I started the Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives and we we started in 2007. It took us a little while to get our 501c3 nonprofit status from the IRS. But once we did, we were off and running. And um, I sold my business. And I've been doing this work uh, full time uh, since we started the organization in 2007. Well, wow, thank you. Um, I mean, 2007 was a huge year. I mean, I graduated from college that year. That's all I got. That's all I got. It, it, it's, it pales in comparison. <laughs> yeah, and there, I think there was a recession that year. There was a whole lot of stuff going on. Um, yeah. So, But it, it doesn't seem that long ago, but I guess 15 plus years is is uh, a little time has gone by. So, so in, in, in going into this working and making sort of the, having that awareness and, and making sort of this transition from like, you know, kind of being disengaged, as you were saying, to I'm I'm deep in it, you know. Um, so to talk talk about maybe doing that sort of 15 plus years of some of the ways, because it's I think it's a lot of times the oppression, the 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 sort of like slavery, some of these things that are inequities that they're right in front of us, mm-hmm. but you know, they're they're covert. And I remember, you know, like I'm in I'm in Baltimore and I'm a big black. I'm a six foot four black guy. 
So, you know, that's that's a dynamic. And I have to live with that. And I find that in times where I speak with a mixed audience, I have people telling me that's not my experience. And I was like, eh, all right. Mm-hmm. And I find that things a little bit more uh, covert. And I find when I go to other places, it's definitely over. And I'm able to identify things a bit better. So, so talk about a little bit of like some of the ways that these 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 slavery or oppression, these different things are like hidden in plain sight and like how, how you've like maybe shifted and seeing those things maybe in a different light since you've been doing this work. Yeah, it's interesting because when you were talking, I was thinking about this idea that sometimes we can't see uh, things that are right in front of our, our face until light has been shown on it. Yeah. And that reminded me of a, an article or an essay that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote um, last year. I don't remember exactly when I read it, but he used the analogy of, you know how when you're in a room and there's sunlight shining in through the window and you see all of these particles in the air of all this dust and stuff floating around that we're breathing in constantly that we don't see, you know, and, and I remember you know, the last time that I saw that light shining on that dust and I thought, man, how is it that our bodies can breathe all of this in and we can still, you know, move forward and and we're not coughing and sneezing all day for one thing. And, and what he was saying was that that light that was being shown in on that dust that we're taking in every day is the same thing as when something is in front of you that you can't see until light is shown on it which I see light as education. And so when you're educated about something, all of a sudden you start seeing all kinds of things that are in front of your face that you didn't know existed, that you might've been um, immune to or desensitized to. And so, um, you know, our work that we do, the foundation of everything we do is around education because both of my ancestors uh, who were born into slavery, both of them understood from a very young age that education was going to be their pathway to freedom. And for Frederick Douglass, when his um, slave mistress began to teach him how to read and write when he was about eight or nine years old, he knew that that was going to be his pathway to freedom when he heard his enslaver uh, say to him and to his wife, you cannot teach a slave how to read and write, because if you do, it will unfit him to be a slave. And Frederick Bailey heard that message loud and clear, and he thought, hmm, if you don't want me to have this, I'm going to do everything in my power to gain it. And he understood right then and there that that was how he was going to one day free himself. And so he would teach himself to read and write. So at the Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives, when we were looking to get started in our human trafficking prevention education work, one of the things that I thought about was that story and how can we unfit communities to allow slavery to exist and thrive. And, And that's through education. And at that time, when we first started, most of the organizations, the anti-trafficking organizations uh, that were doing very good work, they were focused on the the end result, the rescue, restore, and rehabilitation after the victimization has already occurred. Um, and then also law enforcement was focused after the crime was already committed. And there wasn't a lot of work being done around trying to prevent new victims from being spewed into a cycle of exploitation and as well-meaning as those organizations were and are in the work that they were doing, it does create this cycle of exploitation where we're just rescuing, restoring, and rehabilitating. And that's very costly to a community, not to mention uh, the cost and the trauma that the victim uh, suffered. And for a child that had their childhood stolen away, it's very difficult to get them 
uh, back to some semblance of wholeness. And prevention education is really gets at the root of of the issue. Uh, but the other thing that you were talking about is just kind of the intersectionality of all of these various issues that they come together in communities. And really, I believe that the common denominator to all of that is is poverty. And so where people are vulnerable, uh, people can be exploited. And the exploiters are the ones that know how to prey upon uh, the most vulnerable among us. And when you talk about human trafficking around the world, it's estimated that there are more than 40 million people, men, women, and children, that are in some form of slavery or bondage. Some of those people living in conditions as horrific as the slavery that my ancestors endured and survived. And half of those victims are, are children. Uh, Frederick Douglass had a great quote. He said, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. And I would add to that broken women. And so as a part of our mission, uh, we're working to build strong children. And both of my ancestors are superb examples of the power of education. Yeah. Um, and and I, I want to go back into some of the, you know, initiatives, but I definitely want to put this comment in there about, you know, just I think when we as a people start having a sort of awakening and an awareness of what's happening, you know, like you seek out information, you want to make sure it's good information. And I think with how there's been like over the last however many years, I'll say yeah, probably, you know, six to eight years, it's been a lot of like misinformation out there, fake news or whatever the terminology might be thrown out. And I think it's a means to control the person. If you start seeing, you know, what's really happening, then you're going to maybe investigate and say, oh, this is happening to our children in this country. These are the things that are happening. What can we do to remedy that? And people start taking action. But if news is suppressed or if it's misrepresented, then, oh, everything is good. Let's just keep on moving. Hey, there's a new meme. There's a new cat video. So, you know, could you share your thoughts about like how that sort of information cycle is out there? And especially when it comes to some of these issues around like, you know, disenfranchisement uh, around like uh, some of the issues that you guys are working towards um, remedying. Well, history is important for a lot of reasons. I think history is most important because we need to know where we've come from in order to know where we're going. But history is not just about the past. It's also about the present and it's about the future. And I think that particularly for young people, uh, the more that they know about where they come from, uh, the better they can navigate the world in which they live. When you talk about miseducation and, um, you know, keeping blinders over people's eyes, again, let's take our cue from history. It was illegal to teach an enslaved person to read and write. And why is that? Because they didn't want to unfit them to be enslaved. Um, Frederick's master also said to him, you know, he'll be or to his wife, he'll be running away with himself. And so as Frederick starts to uh, teach himself how to read and write, he starts to think critically about his condition of oppression and enslavement. And he starts to ask questions like, why am I a slave? Yeah. And why do you own me? And how come you know your birthday and I don't know my birthday? And so he had that light that was shown into his mental bondage, into his mental darkness, and he knew which way to point. I remember when we first got started, I was in a, a barbershop in Albany, New York, and talking to a group of African-American teenage boys and the 16 year old boy, I'll never forget this. She, he said to me, you know, Mr. Morris, if I could just describe to you what's going on in my mind and my brain, he said, it's like a pitch black hallway. There are no windows, no doors, no way out. I don't know which way to turn. And what you just told me about that 
little bit of light being shown into Frederick's mental bondage, I now have some light being shown into my darkness and I know which way to point and I know which way to get out. And, and that gives me hope. And um, so, you know, when I was coming up, history was really, and I'm older than you are, especially if you, if you graduated college, you said 2007, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm quite a bit older than you are. Uh, I remember when I was coming up, you know, the history was definitely whitewashed and sanitized and and people of African descent were placed in an inferior position in history. They might give us a Frederick Douglass, but they would give us the safe Frederick Douglass, the the prophet, the white haired statesman looking yeah. away from the camera, the, the grandfatherly figure. They yeah. didn't give us that abolitionist who looked directly in the camera and said, I never want to look like a happy, amiable fugitive slave. And when you look me in the eyes, you're going to see my humanity. You're going to see a man that's worthy of freedom, worthy of citizenship. They wouldn't give us that. They give us a watered down, sanitized Dr. King, you know, not the radical king. And so this history and by design to place people of African descent in an inferior position to prop up white supremacy. And you've got a power and oppression dynamic um, that has existed in this country um, since its founding. And education really is is the key uh, to all of this. And and we hear all the time, knowledge is power. Um, I think a lot of times for young people that goes in one ear and out the other. But but it really is true. And uh, because of my unique connection to history, uh, we always want to make sure that we're always turning back and we're taking our cues from history. And then we give examples about what happened. How do, do some of these things still look the same today? And so we've seen young people start to ask questions, critical questions, um, when they start to get some information, education, and they'll ask, well, why is it because I'm born into a certain zip code, I have less access and opportunity to good good education, good healthcare, economic opportunity versus someone else who's born into another zip code through no fault of their own. Right. And playing field from the start is, is not level. Uh, they start to ask critical questions about, you know, systemic racism in it, run, running rampant in institutions around the country. And so that's what what education uh, really does. And, and um, you know, that's that's where our focus has always always been. Wow, I mean, I'm over here. I got chills. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing like the, the, the light amongst the darkness in my mind's eye now, and I, it's definitely the, the questions that are presented. Um, I remember, and the way you're describing the zip code thing, I remember at a point I was like, like unemployed or what have you. I had a non-compete, and I was unemployed from a, from a marketing job, and. Mm-hmm. I'm doing application with one of my buddies and on paper, like in my group of friends, it's like I have pretty you know, decent credentials. And I had a had a buddy who was a white dude. And I was explaining, I was like, you and I, you're you're going to be predisposed to having better opportunities if you go for the interview than if I do. And he was just like not getting it. And I was like, we can I can take your application and put this zip code on there. I started just playing with different things. I was like, I guarantee you'll be rejected. And I remember I was like, they can't ask you what your race is. At least in some of these mm-hmm. says they can't ask you. They can ask you where you live. They can ask you your zip code. And then they have like census date, all of these different pieces of information to piece together a profile. And you start asking questions. Why, why, why? Mm-hmm. And people don't want those sorts of questions. So now in the role that I'm in in the day job, I'm in those sort of hiring positions and I can kind of see it now in a full like 360 view. And I'm saying, oh, this is built this way. All of this was yeah. built this way. So I think a lot of the work that's happening, especially the work that you're describing, 
um, helps give folks, young folks, like uh, just like a leg up and kind of understanding like this is this is the system that we're in now how can you know with that awareness how can we kind of like sort through it and how can you be prepared to combat it yeah well i'm in new jersey and i know we talked before we came on the air about the presentation that i did today uh, to 600 middle school and high school students and they were all looking at me you know kind of cross-eyed when i introduced myself with all of those greats in my title, you know, they're counting on their fingers and how many greats is it? And I always start my presentations this, the same way because I want them to understand how close we are um, to the days of slavery. And my great grandmother who lived to be 101 years old, uh, she married uh, Frederick Douglass's grandson, Joseph, my great grandfather. And so she met Frederick Douglass first when she was a little girl. She didn't know that she was going to grow up and marry his grandson. And then my aunt Portia, to whom I was very close as well, uh, lived to be 95 and she was Booker T. Washington's daughter. And so I remember sitting at the knee of both of them and they could tell me firsthand stories about both men. Yeah. And so I was trying to, I was, it was several years ago or several years after we started and I was trying to figure out something that could help uh, give the students some context uh, between the distance of the generations. And I had this thought, you know, that hands that touched Frederick Douglass and hands that touched the great Booker T. Washington also touched mine. And so in a sense, even with all of those greats, I can say I stand one person away from each man. I stand one person away from history and I stand one person away from slavery. And when you consider 400 years 400 plus years of generational trauma and um it that's been passed down and in 1865 when the last of the four four million enslaved people were freed without a plan most most of them spent the first couple of years just trying to reconnect with family that they had been separated from they didn't own property most didn't know how to read and write uh, they didn't they just had the burlap on their backs. There was no counseling to help them deal with it. There was no post-traumatic stress order designation. Right. And then, you know, we go into the years, the 12 years of reconstruction, and then we get the pushback and Jim Crow and segregation. And then we can just go through the whole litany of um, all of the injustices that have been heaped upon uh, people of color, but people of African descent in this country. And um, it's like you said, you know, these systems are are built and designed and they work exactly as they were intended to work. Yeah, I think when when something's around for a very long time, it's not gone. It's no post-racial anything. It's, it's a thing. It, it's, it's there. And it's just more nuanced. It's you know, it's this thing uh, they talk about with muscle memory. It's, it's like mm -hmm. a version of that. It's like, oh, yeah, we, it's it's, all, it's working the way it's supposed to. It's fine. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's not. It's absolutely it's, it's absolutely terrible. Um, so I got I got two more real questions, and then I, I want to hit you with these rapid fire questions afterwards. Okay. <laughs> so, um, could you share like some of the like? Let, let's let me frame it a little differently. Can you share like, you know, like your your thoughts on the obstacles and like how do you approach obstacles um, from your vantage point now through your history? Like, how do you approach obstacles? And was there one obstacle that really comes to mind um, that was very impactful for like where you're at now in your life? 
again, I take my cue from history and I think about the obstacles that my ancestors faced. And for somebody like Booker T. T. Washington, who was freed when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed on January 1st, 1863, he was nine years old and he was freed and he wanted to go to school so badly that he worked in the salt and coal mines at night so that he could begin his lessons during the day and eventually makes a 500 mile walk um, to go to school at Hampton Institute at the age of 16. And he faced all kinds of obstacles. He ran out of money several times. He had to take odd jobs along the way. He slept outside. He slept under bridges. But the lesson there was there's no obstacle that was too great, no challenge that was insurmountable for him to overcome uh, to get that education. And so when I face obstacles, which we all do, and we all face challenges, uh, mostly sometimes daily, um, I look at those as opportunities um, to be able to, you know, get bust through that that wall or or, or get over that wall, and um, I don't ever really think about obstacles as being insurmountable. You know that we can get through them. Um, to your question about was there one obstacle that kind of changed the course uh, for me and the, the trajectory? I I knew that you were going to answer that question. I've been thinking, or you were going to ask that question, and I've been thinking a lot about it, and I really can't think of one obstacle that really changed everything for me because again i look at them as opportunities and so when i read that national geographic magazine that certainly changed the trajectory of my life i I didn't know that i would be doing this work but because i have been doing it as long as i've been doing it now i can look back at my whole life and even starting with in the entertainment business uh, that helped me be able to do these types of things to do radio interviews or to go on tv or to stand up on stage and, and speak in, in front of people uh, so um you know i guess for the listeners out there just take every obstacle as as a challenge and an opportunity to be able to to bust through that i, I remember hearing of this uh, and thank you i remember hearing of this uh one quote about like obstacles challenges those are vitamins you got to take those every day mm. Yeah, that's right. I haven't heard that quote, but that's that's beautiful. I'm gonna have to use that. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you exactly who said. I'm, I'm blanking on the name right now. Um, but I want to I want to ask you this. This is this is a little like self serving, but it's almost a nice segue. Um, so you have an accomplished and prolific career as like a public speaker as well. You know, CN, I see CNN, I see NPR, I see a keynote speaker at the United Nations. So how do you prepare, like, you know, for, for those who get a little mumble mouth at times and, you know, maybe get the yips and kind of mess up what they're going to say? How do you like prepare? Because, I mean, this is everything I was hoping for. This is the crisp conversation. How do you prepare? Like, do you get nervous? Tell me about that. Yeah, I do get nervous. It's kind of a nervous um, energy or excitement, and it pops up in different ways. You know, I'll I'll have an opportunity to speak in front of 2,000 people, and, and I'm calm, and my heart rate is not going fast. And then there are other times when I'm in a room with 25 people, and my heart rate is, is you know, my heart is pounding out of my chest. So there's no rhyme or reason uh, to why I get nervous, but I definitely do. And I remember... Uh, the first time that I read, Frederick Douglass wrote about the first time that he he spoke in front of a white audience. And so he becomes one of the greatest speakers that this country has ever seen, has ever known. And when he was about 22 years old, he was asked at an anti-slavery meeting on Nantucket Island to stand up and just tell his story. Well, he had honed his skills, his speaking skills while he was enslaved in black churches. But this now he's standing up as uh, an enslaved person who was at a fugitive slave 
we would have called them a fugitive slave at that time, but we call those people freedom seekers now, but that's that's a whole nother story of, and, and conversation about language. But he wrote, he said, I was so nervous that I was shaking from every limb, you know, that his, his knees were knocking together. And here's one of the greatest speakers, again, that this country has ever seen. And, and he got nervous as well. So those, that kind of anxiety, I think is very common. And for me, singing on stage was very different than speaking on stage. I was very comfortable singing on stage. And the first time that I had to speak on stage, I was a nervous wreck, just like I didn't, I couldn't put, probably put two, two sentences together. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to be able to get up in front of an audience and, and be able to share uh, stories about my family and the work that we do. And I feel blessed uh, to be able to do this work. Thank you. That's, that's great. Um, so I got, uh, I got, I got a, what, four, I got four rapid fire questions for you. Okay. Don't, over, don't overthink them. They're, you know, they're, they're goofy, silly little questions, but you know, they, they, they like people peek behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. So here's the first one, regardless of distance, do you prefer flying or driving? I'm flying. Absolutely flying. Well, for one second, someone's at my door. Okay. So let's see. Uh, so you said driving. No, I said flying. Flying. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. Hmm. Are you more of a thinker or doer? Thinker. Aren't we all? <laughs> 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 it's just like, oh, I'm just gonna just leap before I look. It's like now nah, I'm gonna look and I'm gonna figure out hmm, where do I want to land. I'm gonna roll. Wait, but you know, yeah, you notice I had a little bit of pause in between there because I was thinking about the question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, actually, I could say I, I'm both a thinker and a doer. I, I think first and then and then I do something in the same way that I thought about your question and then I answered it. So I did something. <laughs> See, I, I like that. I, that's, that's, a, that's a very creative way of answering that. Going back to the creative thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What object that you would usually have on your person that you misplace the most? My chapstick. Mm hmm. Chapsticks and remotes. They're like the, the number one thing. It's like, where is that, where is that remote? Where's that chapstick? Yeah. You know, I'm always, I, I have, um, and then when I find the chapstick, I'll have, find like four or five of them in all different places that I dropped them or left them around the house. So, yeah. I, I thought I lost my wallet earlier and I went to the gym and I was like, do I, did I bring my wallet with me? I don't have my wallet. And the, the crazy thing is I have one of these, these little air tags. Mm-hmm. So I was looking on my iPhone. I was like, it says my wallet's with me. I was like, I don't think it's, I don't think I have it. So I get home and I put the little device on and it's tracking and it's like ping, ping, ping. And then it's just buzzing like really crazy on the phone. It was on, it was in my backpack the entire time, which I had oh. the entire time. <laughs> well, it's good. You have one of those, uh, find those tags on it. So you can find it if you do lose it. Yeah. Cause, um, you know, part of it was the travel thing. I, Mm-hmm. Would vary because I'm usually bringing my recording gear. So if like I lose my gear or I, I can lose all of my clothing if I'm traveling, I lose my <laughs> gear. I am not happy. No, no. Uh-uh. So um, this is the last one, and this is this is you know nice nice segue, nice wrap up for this 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 conversation. What is your most strongly held belief? Mm, wow. I again taking my cue from history. And Booker T. Washington, um, how he just always talked about character. I think my strongest belief is that um, character is important and um, honesty is important. Truth telling is is important. And so, 
you know, these are types of things that my wife and I have tried to teach our our girls as well. And they've grown grown up to be just beautiful human beings. And I'm very proud of that. Thank you. That was great. So um, that's pretty much it for the the main uh, podcast and um, and, the, and the conversation here. But I want to open it up and invite you to um, share anything you want in these final moments, like the shortest shameless plug, the website, the social media, all of that good stuff. Um, the floor is yours. February 14th, which was Frederick Douglass's birthday, we announced that we are building a new museum called the Frederick Douglass Museum Center for Justice, Knowledge, and Equality in Rochester, New York, which was Frederick Douglass's adopted hometown. It's where he published the North Star newspaper. It's where he spent 25 years of his life, and it's where he and my great-great-great-grandmother, Anna, are buried. Uh, that's going to be a four to five year project to get that built. Uh, we signed a purchase and sales agreement with a, a businessman there in town. And the beautiful thing about it is it's just blocks down from the Talman building where he published the North Star newspaper. And so Frederick Douglass is returning to Main Street. Uh, the other thing that I'm really excited about is we just partnered with Forefront Books and Simon and & Schuster on a new Frederick Douglass Books publishing imprint. And we're going to amplify the voice of black and brown authors. Um, the first publication on that new imprint is our Douglass family edition of Frederick Douglass's first autobiography, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. And through a project that we call One Million Abolitionists, we're working to give away 1 million copies of that book to students all over the world. I gave 600 of them today away today at the presentation at the school here in New Jersey. Uh, we've to date given away more than 100,000 copies of that book because we also had in 2018, which was Frederick Douglass's bicentennial year, we published a, a bicentennial edition of the narrative. So we're a long way away from the million, but with the help of your listeners and people that uh, want to contribute to help uh, fund the books, you can go to our website, which is fdfi.org, and that's the acronym for Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives, fdfi.org. Uh, click on the initiatives tab and you can see all of the great projects and programs that we're working on. And if you'd like to help support the project, you can do that on the website as well uh, by making a tax deductible uh, contribution. So uh, we got a lot going on at Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives. So check us out. And there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Kenneth B. Morris Jr. for coming on to the podcast. And I'm Rob Lee saying that there is culture and heritage in and around your neck of the woods. You've just got to look for it. Oh,